Good evening and welcome to Pop Culture Double Date. Um, this week we are watching Dune, a film by Denis Villeneuve. It stars Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, a bunch of other people as well. It's a film that I have personally been looking forward to a lot. I know Mags has been looking forward to it a lot as well. I'm pretty sure Jerry has as well. I'm not yep. so sure about our job, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but say hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Salud. Yeah, so Dune, um, based on the famous sci-fi novel by um, Frank Herbert. So this is a full spoilers podcast, and I'm just going to get straight into it, right? Um, so, I mean, what is what is Dune really about? Now, Jerry made the comment before this podcast that it's very hard to summarize the story of this film. Um, I'm going to kind of try, because I think... Um, part of my comments are kind of linked to the emotional journey of Paul Atreides, and I think it's important to understand kind of how the story fits into that, right? Now, first things first, like, overall, I think this is a great piece of filmmaking, and I think this is an amazing cinematic experience, an experience. However... I don't think this is a flawless film, and I think this is a very good film, but I don't think it's a great film. Um, and I, so I kind of just want to bring that up front first, as it's kind of like how I feel about the film. It's definitely a film that I walked out of, and I felt like it physically touched me. I mean, I mean, not in a jokey sort of way, right? But it's, you know, like it physically affected me. This was a film that physically affected me. And not many films do that, right? So definitely there is something very special about this film. But um, I guess with the benefit of a few days since I've seen it um, and having time to kind of think about it and digest it a little bit, I think there are issues with this, not not necessarily major, major issues to make it a bad film, but issues that don't make it like one of the all-time greats, right? So even though from a filmmaking perspective and from a cinematic experience perspective, I think that it is actually a film that is outstanding. But as a film, I don't think this is one of the all-time greats. I kind of want to get into this, so I'm going to like start sort of trying to summarize what Dune is about, right? So Dune is like a sci-fi, massive scope sort of sci-fi story, right? The basis of it is basically there's a planet, Dune, called like otherwise known as Arrakis, and it contains the one resource, the most important resource in the galaxy, the Spice Melange, which allows people to do inter interstellar travel, essentially, right? Like some explanation around it, but basically all you need to know is that it's the most important thing in the universe. Now, at the beginning of the film, we're introduced to House Atreides, um, and Paul Atreides and his father, Leto Atreides, and his mother, who, um, who is the Lady Jessica, right? So, basically, at the beginning of the film, the Emperor of the Universe um, has told House Atreides, you guys are now the owners of Dune essentially. You guys now run the spice trade out of Dune. You're going to supplant the old house that was there, House Harkonnen, because the galaxy is basically ruled by these like feudal houses, and you're going to take over, right? But, really, like, what is at the heart of this film is kind of, this is a trap, because the Emperor, this is a political Game of Thrones thing, where the Emperor is trying to use this 
give Duke Leto Atreides Dune because he knows that Duke Leto Atreides is popular amongst the Landsraff, which is like the sort of the grouping of noble houses that kind of rules the galaxy. But he wants to basically use it as a death trap for him because he's going to send Leto to Dune. Leto is going to be out of his home planet of Kaladin, out of his... He's not going to have all the protections that his home planet offers him. And then the like the Emperor is going to get House Harkonnen, who hate House Atreides, to attack their Atreides and kill them all, right? To use it as an example, basically, to tell all the other houses, don't F with me, I'm the Emperor. So this is kind of the political setup of Dude, and really this is what happens in the... It, plot-wise, this is kind of what happens in the story, right? Like, House Atreides lands on Arrakis, they're basically sabotaged from day one, they get crushed. The Emperor sends his elite troops, House Harkonnen attack, House Atreides basically gets wiped out, and the second half of this story is basically Paul Atreides and his mother escaping into the desert to escape, uh, to sort of flee their Harkonnen captors and try to find some sort of way to survive in the desert with the Fremen, who are the natives of Arrakis. Now, that's kind of the plot, the overall plot of Dune. But I guess, to me, what the central story actually is, well, what the central story should be, I think, as someone who's read the novels, is really about Paul Atreides. And I think the story of this... Oh, so the other thing is that I should let everyone know, this film, Dune, covers the first half of the Frank Herbert novel, Dune. It ends, and there's a whole other half of the novel. So this film ends relatively abruptly. I mean, we'll have, we can have a discussion about whether it ends too abruptly. I, I don't think so, but it definitely ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger, right? But it's the first half of, of this book. Now, why, what do I think is the most the important emotional journey here for the first half of this? What is the real character story that we're trying to tell here, right? The underlying character story of Dune is that Paul Atreides is kind of like this chosen child. He has special powers, right? Like, he's being tested by all these sort of people, and he, he, he has special powers. Now, the thing is that he doesn't really quite understand what his special powers are, and the point of the the point basically is that he is a messianic figure. It's not because he is innately magical or has been chosen by God. He hasn't been chosen by God. Basically, like one in this sci-fi universe, there, all, there are all these people kind of playing games and all this type of stuff. And there's a order of uh, women called the Bene Gesserit, and they basically manipulate politics. And they've sort of concocted this sort of genetic lineage that's going to lead to this guy with superpowers that they're going to install as a messianic figure. And that is who Paul Atreides is. Against his, he doesn't really have any agency in it. He's just a guy who, a boy, essentially, who has been chosen, um, well, who, by fate, has basically is kind of the messiah. And I think the central emotional story of this um, film is basically... A boy who has a very compassionate father, a loving mother, having to deal with this idea of, like, how does someone, in a, essentially a compassionate, normal individual, deal with this idea that someday I am going to become a messiah, right? And more than that, I, I think the central emotional story here is actually Paul kind of slowly throughout this story kind of understands what is 
necessary, like what, what's, what being a messiah is going to entail, right? So this, uh, this idea that being a messiah is not actually just about having special powers. His fate is going to be tied to the fate of the universe. And in fact, going to be tied to the death of billions. In the book, it's made explicitly clear that this is the case, right? Um, but it, essentially, it's like this guy who kind of realizes, hey, if I go down this path that has been laid out for me, I will have great power. I will essentially become the emperor of the universe. But in the process, billions of people are going to die. I'm going to lead a revolution which is going to sweep across the galaxy and billions billions and billions of people are going to die as a result of it, right? And therein lies this sort of ethical and sort of very human struggle, which is, what path do I choose? Do I choose this path which is like this messianic path, which everyone has told me is necessary in the long run? Or do I try to avoid it somehow and avoid all these potential deaths, right? I think that at the end of the day, this is kind of, this should be the crucial emotional tale that is told in Dune, right? This should be the tale of Paul Atreides and how he grasps with these issues, right? And this is where, as good as a film this this is, I think this is where this film falls flat because that emotional journey for me is not clear enough. This film, in some ways, is very unemotional, very dispassionate, very sort of high level in some ways, right? And that central inner story of Paul Atreides dealing with that struggle of whether he should be the Messiah or not is not well fleshed out enough. I think that the final scene of this film is really really works because it gets at the heart of that sort of that choice that Paul has to make, right? Because the final scene of this film, Paul fights a man to the death and he has to choose whether he's going to kill that man. I think Denis Villeneuve specifically engineered that scene so there was a very specific choice so that in killing that man and losing his innocence, that is when he chooses the path of like becoming a messiah essentially, right? But the problem is that leading up to that, we as an audience are not brought enough, along enough on that emotional journey. We as an audience don't feel like we don't really get to know Paul the human at all. And more than that, there is a crucial scene in this film which basically outlines why Paul should be horrified at becoming this messianic figure. It's the scene immediately after he escapes from the Harkonnen in which he sits in a tent and he is assaulted by all these visions of the future, right? And in this scene, and this scene, I think, is, for me, part of the reason why this film fails emotionally is because this scene in particular doesn't land, right? Because this scene is too confusing. Like, it, like... I mean, one of the great things about this film is that it treats its audience like an intelligent audience. It doesn't sort of dictate every plot beat to this audience. It expects you to kind of like read between the lines, right? But the problem is specifically for this scene in the, se- this scene in the TED, it is way too hands-off, way too hands-off. And, you know, asking amongst friends who watch that, watch the film, what I think, that scene in the tent is like a crucial, crucial scene for Paul's character. And most of the people I watched this film with did not 
understand what was going on in that scene, and more than that, could not even hear the dialogue properly in that scene, right? So in my mind, that, it's really sad for me to say that, like, that scene fails, and so much of the film hinges on on this scene, and so much on the film of the film hinges on this sort of the humanization of Paul Atreides, and I, I think this is where this film goes from not from being a great film to only a very good film because that sort of emotional character journey doesn't quite land. So, I apologize for going on for so long. It's just one of very many points, but. I, I recognize that this podcast is not just about me ranting as much as I like to rant. So I'm going to throw it out. Mags, w- what did you think about Dune? And did you agree with my rant? <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's so much to unpack there. Um, so I'll, I'll start um, with my thoughts and then go to my thoughts about um, your rant. So I'm like you slightly conflicted about this movie because there's so much to love about it um, and I'm a recent fan to June the book and I listened to the audiobook um, relatively recently so I went into the movie with um, a bit of uh, knowledge and understanding of the story the characters and I guess what that what sort of Denis Villeneuve was trying to achieve um, as I said um there is so much to love about this movie, and like you, Darren, it left a real impact on me after I left the cinema, and it affected my my mood for the rest of the day. And I think there's very few movies of late that have had such an impact on me, and the two that come to mind um, recently um, are Annihilation, which was a movie with Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac as well, um, also a, a sort of science fiction movie. And the other one, um, which I rewatched recently, was Arrival, which is also a Denis Villeneuve movie. So I think to me, the fact that it left such a long-lasting impact on me in, um, actually um, overall makes me really want to love this movie. I think um, if you were completely new to the story, the movie would have been deeply confusing because there wasn't a lot of exposition at all. And, I mean, I think you said, Darren, that um, it treats its audience as if it was an intelligent audience. Um, and it does that by showing um, showing a lot and leaving a lot to implication. Um, and a great example of that is actually how the movie starts, which is a dream by Paul. We realise Paul dreaming about Cheney and Arrakis and Cheney kind of setting out in that um, those few opening remarks what the kind of dilemma with Arrakis is from a Fremen's perspective. And from that, if you were completely new to the story and to the movie, I think that would have been the start of just mass confusion, really. Um, so from that from that angle, I can kind of understand that. And um, in interviews that I've listened to with Denis Villeneuve, it's pretty clear that he has been a huge fan since he was a kid, uh, since he... He read the books when he was um, a kid. And so in many ways, this is a bit of a fan film. And watching the movie, it does feel like a labour of love um, and something that he th- that was deeply personal to, to the director. Um, for me, I-, I found the movie just so visually spectacular. Um, it was visionary in its conception realisation of the Dune universe. I know that term visionary is used a lot to describe some directors, but I genuinely think that Denis Villeneuve does deserve that that credit. Yeah, um, the the imagination of his 
um, team to bring it all to life. The designers, the costume, um, those guys who sit there and draw all the costume art and the, the world art, the technology, the different touches they put in the design to distinguish the different cultures in in the universe. I just thought that attention to detail was just so beautiful. Um, so, like, for example, we get to see the home planet of the Atreides, Kaladin. We see the home planet of the Hakot, the Harkonnen house. We see the home planet of this, of this Sardikans. We see Arrakis. And each of those planets and those scenes um, give you such a beautiful insight and um, into the different cultures and their perspective. Um, and I think that level of attention to detail um, really added to um, to the realization of that world. Like, for example, with the Sardican, when they were anointing each of the um, uh, soldiers who had been called to support the Harkonnens in Arrakis, um, take down the Atreides' house, they were, you know, when you sort of, the, the shot then panned back from the, um, the people anointing the soldiers through to looking at that sort of overall frame and you realize that they're actually being anointed by the blood of these men whose bodies are being drained and then it makes you then realize who who are these like the the actual um terror that the the warriors of the sardican must strike because here they are in this kind of uh, religious it, it seems like this religious cult but a very bloody warlike religious cult almost like um, but then also akin to um, the Spartans um, mm. as well. So all of that, he didn't say anything in that um, in any of those um, shots, but it was all kind of explained through the visualization, bringing who are the Sardican to life. So yeah, um, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, the Sardaukar captain, Sardaukar, I think is, but. The Sardaukar captain basically just all he says is we are the emperor's blades and that's it. <laughs> but then you yeah. get everything else from the visuals of like Gyeidi, uh is a Gyeidi Prime. I can't remember actually. No, Gyeidi I think it's Prime Gyeidi. is a. Uh, I'm not sure. It, it doesn't matter. But I think Gyeidi Prime is the Harkonnen homeworld. Actually, I can't remember. Anyway. Mm. So like and I, and then you know as well I love that contrast between you start with Kaladin which is effectively like a planet, which is Scotland, <laughs> it seems, very wet. Um, you know, there are seas, it's raining all the time, it's so green and verdant. Um, and then you get uh, this sense of what, the, but you had started the movie in the desert, right, with Paul and his dream, but then you, you enter his reality, which is this blue planet that is incredibly green. And then for the rest of the movie, really, you spend the time in, in this red planet. I, I love that contrast. Just visually very beautiful. Music, I mean, it just goes without saying that contributed so much to the mood. Um, and then the casting, I thought, was perfect. So, in other words, the scene and the worlds within which the story takes place are just incredible. And it, for all those reasons, that's what left such an impression on me and um, affected my mood so long after I left the cinema. But then for me, I also, like you, Darren, I felt like there was something missing and I've been trying to figure out what that has been, what, what didn't quite land with me. Um, so I think 
part of it is the fact that um, this movie seems, because it wants to, um, in general, faithfully stick to the book, and it generally retells the story as it is set out in the book for the first half, it moves from scene to scene. Um, from you know some of the reviews I've read, um, interestingly, people don't see it as a, pro- a plot-driven movie, but in some ways it feels like that to me um, because it, it, it's almost like if it is a labour of love and it's it's a fan movie, um, then maybe that's what um, a fan would do. Um, there was very little time spent setting up the characters and helping the audience to connect to them. So I can also understand from someone who has zero knowledge of of the story that that would have been a bit of a challenge because this movie is about these characters, as you say, Darren, and in particular, Paul Atreides, his relationship with his father, his relationship with his mother, and his relationship with his fate, and with um, then what will eventually become his people, the Fremen. And so Paul, out of all the characters, you really want to be able to connect to him, and and I, I think that more time could have been spent actually helping with that. Um, I wasn't quite, um, I, I didn't quite connect with Timothy Chalamet's version of Paul Atreides. I felt that he was quite aloof. Um, and so I don't know whether or not he was told to play Paul in that way. Similarly, I didn't quite resonate with the way the movie portrays the la- Lady Jessica in the book. And in my mind, she was always a very powerful woman and powerful figure. And um, she was one of the Bene Gesserit women um, who actually defied the Reverend Mother in her instructions. And her independence, I think, is quite an important trait that she also passes on to Paul. So um, her strength, I felt like they could have done a lot more, whereas um, they – and I don't know if it's because this is the way that they were trying to make the audience connect to her – um, they portrayed her as a woman who was always weeping, always um, stressed and anxious, um, and continually repeating the kind of Bene Gesserit mantra. Or, or I can't remember what the the actual term is that they use. Um, the lines around that start with um, oh, "Fear is the mind killer," yeah. or whatever it is, right? Yeah, fear, fear is, is the, the mind little death. That yeah, I, I can't remember yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, which is a a, um, a beautiful. Um, mantra that they set out in in the fear book. Is, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but, so she practices uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> yes, she does. That, that is what the Benny Chesserit do. <laughs> and like genetic manipulation. Um, but yeah, so for me, I... I think that was a bit of a lost opportunity with Jessica. Um, and, and, and can I just add to that? Because um, Mags over the weekend, actually, um, we were listening to parts of the, the audiobook actually, Dune, together. And I have to 100% agree with that because the way the Lady Jessica is written in the books, I feel she has so much more agency. Like in the desert, she takes much more control than... Paul like as in in this film she basically in the desert she is so reliant on Paul while I think in the books that's actually not how that kind of goes like she's still pretty like handy right it's a weird choice it's a weird choice the way they've kind of like really played up her vulnerability in this 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I'm not sure if it's be, yeah, I, I'm not sure why. Um, I, and I don't know how much um, control the actors may or may not have had in in um, changing the depiction of these characters. Um, anyway, um, and yes, so I, I, in terms of your point, Darren, about um, how the central story is, is Paul and his relationship to his fate and that moment where he changes and he makes that decision of will he retain his, hold on to his humanity um, or will he um, do what's necessary to survive? Yeah. I feel like he was put in a really impossible position because um, in some ways, in order to retain his humanity, he also needed to sacrifice his his father's um, desire to um, continue the House Atreides. And I think um, there's, uh, yeah, I think that that's an impossible position that Paul was placed in. And in some ways, I think he, he was always going to make that decision about choosing to survive. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. But I, I guess my point is that that moment can have so much more pathos in it, right? Like, if mm. you if you really build in that this is genuinely a conflict, and that, like, it then becomes more of a tragedy, which I think really, like, in some ways, this is how this is really meant to be played. This is like the tragedy of someone who is actually a compassionate understanding very human person who whose father is like a humanist right who in this very feudal world his father is someone who believes in these liberal democratic values almost in some ways right like you know like you know the ascendance of the rational mind and man and all this type of stuff right like it it feels like i mean this is the tragedy right where his father is that sort of man but you know, he is put in this, you're right, he's put in an impossible situation. And I feel like there could have been so much more of an emotional oomph in that moment that could have landed with many, like, with a wider audience. But in a way, it's presented in such a dispassionate way that, like, yeah, I, I just feel like that oomph isn't there. I, I don't know if I'm making sense or not, but... No, yeah. you, you are, you are. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree with a lot of what you said there, Mags. So um, I'm going to throw it over to Anja now. Anja, what, what, what do you think? Okay, look, um, initially I thought it was it started off really powerfully. Um, the cinematography, gorgeous. Like whatever I may have imagined in my mind was, um, you know, trivial compared to what these filmmakers were able to put together. Just truly fantastic. I am so glad... Um, that we saw it in VMAX. I usually don't like watching movies in VMAX, and I'm so glad that Gerald uh, talked me into it because there is no other way. It was stunning, and just watching all that visual splendor was kind of worth it. Uh, the music, incredible. Like, I think the reason why we felt, like, shaken at times and why we were having, like, such physical reactions to this movie is because of just how amazing the music was. And it was extremely loud in the movie theatre, which I guess it had to be, and that also really contributed 
to it. Um, I also, so I come from this as someone who recently read the first half of the book. I actually read right up to where the movie ends, just coincidentally. And then I got bored with the book and I didn't keep reading. Um, and I didn't know that this movie was just the first part. So I thought I was going to get the full story. Um, and then Gerald told me on our way there that it's just the first half. So that's all I know is the first half of the book. And I don't know anything about how, um, you know, Paul's character development beyond that first half or anything about what happened. So that's what I came to it with. And I thought that it would not be possible to better recreate the world, apart from a few things which I'll talk about. But I just think they did such a good job of putting that world on the screen, the costumes, the worm was amazing, the fight scenes, just oh, even the eyes. I was like, what are they going to do? Are they going to have like full blue eyes? Like, surely not. They did a great job um, with all of it. Okay. But at the end of the day, I described this movie to Gerald as intensely uninteresting and beautifully boring um, because the actual development of plot, plot's okay. Plot, yeah, plot development, okay, but it's the characters I just thought were so badly um, lacking. Like, you say the emotional arc of Paul, the main character, is meant to be that he struggles with becoming, like, a, 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 you know, a saviour, and the he struggles with the reality that doing that will lead to the death of billions, and he doesn't want to be responsible for that. Now, obviously, like you said, we don't get any hint of that in this movie, um, am I going to read that in because of the books? Well, you know, up, where I read up to, you, you start to see that. You start to see his enormous distress at these visions where, you know, people are going to die. And he sees this as a repulsive, terrible, evil thing that he must avoid at all costs. And he is also extremely distressed by his morphing from, you know, average, average advanced human from the year 10 whatever, to um, basically a super advanced computer brain that can calculate everything and knows everything in the future and knows everything in the past, like an omniscient mind, you know, um, a computer-esque god. Um, and he, you know, feels like a freak. He struggles with that. He's angry that it's happening to him. Um, I don't feel like there's a huge amount of it in the book, but there is enough and it is intensely enough written up to where I got up to anyway, that, you know, I felt that it was there. But in the movie, it is not there at all. Like, yes, he screams in the tent, but it's like, why are you having a meltdown? You know, if you didn't know it was what, what he was upset about, you'd be like, kid, why are you having a meltdown? Pick it up, you know, put yourself together and help your mum out. Don't yell at your mum in the tent. 100%. So, Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing is that with um, with with Paul's character, I really like you're describing him as this lovely guy who you know it's this tragic kind of what happened to him. But unfortunately, I just saw him as super powered from the start. Like he is born to a life of luxury and privilege. He is amazing from the start and he becomes more amazing. Like as soon as his dad dies, just out of the blue, he just suddenly becomes even more amazing. It doesn't seem like the journey of someone who actually is struggling. Yes, he is struggling with suddenly becoming invincible. Poor you. Um, but there's no, there's no, real like struggle there there's no rise i have a, a quote from um the book this is about 
This is said about Paul. He learned rapidly because his first training was in how to learn, and the first lesson of all was the basic trust that he could learn. It is shocking to find how many people do not believe they can learn, and how many more believe learning to be difficult. But not Paul. Paul knew from the beginning that he could do anything. He always could. He always did. He always will. I just don't find that perfect person, that you know, superb person who has very few weaknesses and and never did from the beginning. I don't find that person a compelling person. I don't relate to that at all. I related a lot more to his father, and that is what kept my interest. Like I found the first half of the book interesting because the book likes to spoil itself. The, the book will tell you exactly what's going to happen before anything happens. So the book tells you from the start that、um, Leto is doomed. This is something the movie doesn't tell you. Okay, the movie just. Let's let's it happen. But the book tells you from the very beginning, Leto is not going to survive. There's no chance for him, and it's pretty convincing. We don't expect him to survive. So because I know this man is going to meet a horrible end, I cared more about him. You know, like I'm waiting for that to happen. I'm like, how is it going to happen? I'm like, I feel bad for him already. So I'm just more emotionally invested in him. Whereas Paul just seems to be just too perfect and. When he becomes more powerful, he he seemed to turn into a computer for me. So I went from not being able to relate to him because I I felt envy that he had so much from the very beginning and never had to fight for anything,、um, to just not relating to him because he turns into a computer that knows everything, sees everything, you know, calculates everything. Can, can so, I can I、uh, add something to that, Anna? Jo, yeah, because yeah, I, I think、yeah. you like you. Put up a really good point just then, like the comparison between Leto and Paul. And I think actually in this film, there's a scene which is actually quite oddly done in my mind, which makes you feel a lot of affinity to Leto, but not really that much connection to Paul. So there's a scene when they all go out in the ornithopters and they see the sandworm, and then they rescue those guys from the、um, harvester. Right, so the sandworm is about to eat the harvester, and Leto is the one who says, "Actually, we're going to drop everything. We're going to come down. We're going to rescue these guys." Right, like、yeah. against he says something about,、oh, "Damn the spice, the men are more something along those lines." Right, damn the spice, the men are more important, or, or something like that. Right. Yes. And it's kind of like, oh, okay, fine. We've got a good guy. This is this man is. You know, he knows that he has to make money, but at the end of the day, he values human life more highly. Right. Really good moment. The problem is that Paul's contribution in that scene is basically to get another one of his visions. He doesn't really sort of resonate with that message that his father is saying. He kind、mm-hmm. of just like breaks down in the desert, and so it's kind of like another weird moment where it's like, okay, I get that this guy has visions, but. Isn't this actually a great moment? Like, if you're going to diverge from the books and try to build more emotion into this character, because I agree with you that Frank Herbert writes in a very dispassionate manner, and I think it's actually reflected in this film. Like, tonally, the film and the book are actually similar in some ways because of how dispassionate they are, right? But you would think if Daniel Villeneuve is like, I'm going to install a bit more human emotion into this. I'm gonna make Paul like this would be a perfect scene for Paul to connect more with his father and to, for him to show some sort of human aspect, but it's chosen instead to double down on the Messiah aspect of his character. So it's really yeah, I found that weird, and I, I agree with you, right? I agree that Leto is the much more 
um, sort of relatable individual. So I actually think the greatness of Leto was dumbed down in the movie because uh, he is not only a compassionate, good person that people genuinely want to follow because he is genuinely good, but he's really smart and political at the same time. So in the book, when he makes that decision to save the lives, he does it for two reasons in the book. He does it because he's a good person and he values their life, but he also makes it clear to the people who work there that it was him who did it. And he mm. says he's letting them know so that they they know him. They, they mm. know he's a good guy and they, they will be on his side. And I find that mix of he's a good guy, but he's also politically savvy to be even... Like, yeah. That makes me like him more, you know? Yeah, and they just dumb that down in the movie, but you're absolutely right. Paul's contribution was to get himself put himself in a position where he almost risked everybody's lives. He's just kind of just sitting there having a <laughs> yeah, like... having a <laughs> weird, yeah. weird choice. Anyway, um, so yeah, so I didn't connect with Paul. And so I found myself in situations where Paul was in danger, like a perfect example being um, oh, lots of examples, you know, when that thing comes out of his bed, um, when the sandworm chases, I found myself absolutely riveted, waiting to see how the cinematography was going to be executed. Like, I wanted to see how that thing that came out of the bed was going to be depicted because, you know, it, I, it was such a strange concept and I wanted to see it in real life. When the sandworm came, I was like, yes, show me the worm, show me the worm. And I just want to see how it's going to just pop out of the earth and give me that sort of feeling. At no point am I feeling, oh, my God, Paul, Paul. Like, I'm not worried at all for him. <laughs> not just not just because I know he's going to survive. Okay, not not for that reason. I just don't really care that much about Paul, which I think is a, a problem. You know, you've, got to, you've got to be invested in the main character. Yeah. Um, on Mags's point about Jessica, I'm going to call it sexism. So this is what I think. They, I think they decided that we couldn't relate to a woman who is as cold and ruthless and manipulative as Jessica and the Bene Gesserits are. And while that is revered in that fictional world, I think the creators thought that we wouldn't revere it and we wouldn't like it. And that's why they vulnerabilized her into this weeping, anxious mess. Um, <laughs> to add to that, <laughs> to add to that, in the books, right, she knows her husband is going to die and she does not try to stop it. You know, That's so true. that yeah. is something they didn't show us. And I instead they just showed her as this, you know, in love woman who just, you know, is there is an accessory. Um, and I think they didn't show us that because they must have thought that we couldn't get behind a woman who wouldn't try to save her, 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 her beloved male partner. Um, similarly, we didn't. And I don't think this part is sexism. I think this part is just editing. But we didn't learn about how the Bene Gesserit actually set up the whole legend of the Chosen One and that it's not a real legend. Like, they created it. Yes, it also happens to be true. But they created that by laying, like, little, you know, messages and implanting that information there. Um, they are behind it, which goes to show their power and their influence and their foresight. And we don't get to see any of that either. You know, it's it's a very, like, we are told um, during the movie, the mother, the, the reverend mother says, you know, we have done everything we can to pave your way. And then it's just never mentioned again. So unless you knew what happened in the books, that would mean nothing to you. You know, what have they done to pave their way? You don't learn anything. So, you know, again, I think that's just the dumbing down of the Bene Gesserit's 
and Jessica, basically. Anyway, so <laughs> um, casting. Casting, interesting. Um, I actually thought Timothy played Paul the way I imagined, like in a detached, boring way. So <laughs> I thought that, that's how I imagined Paul, so there was nothing wrong with that. Race. A lot, is, a lot has been said about race and the casting choices in this book. All I can say is, yeah, made me uncomfortable. It was kind of weird because the, the, the race, the people who are being saved, they're all dark-skinned, but they're not the same race. Okay, so they're not all... All, all, all black. They're not all like Middle Eastern. They're not the same race. There's a mix of races there that is obvious, right? So it wasn't like a choice was made that all these people have to be racially cohesive to make sense, right? Because they're all people who live on a planet. They're one race. They're not racially cohesive. So why then can't you just add some white people to that mix so it doesn't look like the white guy and his white mother are coming to save all the brown people? I don't understand why they couldn't have just added some native white people so that dynamic wasn't there you know i don't understand how they didn't even see that on the other side there is a mix paul's father doesn't look completely white um you know carl carl what's his name carl drogo is not white you know um, isn't javier bardem is... white though who javier bardem stilgar is white yeah he is white he's he's he's, he's properly spanish he's not latin american so but but he's but, but he they give him they give him a they give him a very dark tan so he looks like a person of color. I didn't no, notice that anyone there was white. Are you saying they painted someone with blackface? No, they didn't paint <laughs> him with blackface. He's just he's just like it's Javier Bardem. You know Javier Bardem, right? He was he, he was the guy who came into the conference room and spat on the floor. Oh, that guy looked totally non-white to me. I had no idea he was white. Yeah, I think it's just that they're in the desert, so, like, everyone's much, just tan. Too much spray tan. They're in the desert, so everyone's... Okay, that does make sense. Okay, I can take that, because it must be something. In today's day and age, surely they wouldn't... They would have thought about that. Look, the desert argument, okay, I guess... <laughs> Anyway, I found it uncomfortable. I don't like to see white people arriving on their shining horses with their superior ability, um, saving the brown people. But I, I, I guess if I were to say something positive in that regard, I, they don't. Maybe it's not a story of the white person saving the brown people. Maybe it's a story of them helping each other. I don't know. I didn't like it though. I didn't love it. I didn't love it. <laughs> Look, the Harkonnens. Such a blah villain. Like, look, done as well as they could be done, given the source material. I found the way that guy just rose up to be so imposing and kind of kind of floated. I found that very, like, disturbingly imposing. Um, and then how he just crouches in the ceiling to avoid being poisoned. All of that stuff was, oof. Look, so in some ways it was done well. So I guess the problem is with the source material, it's not a well-developed villain, at least not, not up to halfway through the book where I've, I've read and not in the movies. Now, can, do we say, can we say that about all villains? All villains tend to be one-dimensional, okay? And But they can be great one-dimensional villains if they are developed. So Voldemort from J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series is a good example. He could not be more one-dimensional. He's just all evil. But he is well-developed. You know, we know his motivations. We know why he is the way he is. We know lots about him. And that, I think means it doesn't matter that he's one-dimensional at all 
we he's still a fleshed out um you know wonderful character that we'll never forget i just don't know how fleshed out the the, the this villain is and you know like to me it matters a good villain <laughs> matters to me so look that's kind of what i have to say about it the plot i thought was fine um to me um you know what is reminiscent of this plot is the story of Daenerys up to the point that her dragons are born you know it's the chosen one who ultimately goes into the desert births the dragons through this process of she should burn to death but instead she survives and she births the dragons and now she's found a new people also brown she's also white and found a new brown people <laughs> that she's going to lead and this is kind of similar right this guy goes into this other planet he um you know he's betrayed she was betrayed he's betrayed um but he is going to rise up he he becomes he becomes superpowered i don't think we see it in the movie that he has suddenly become superpowered um and that he's now this computer that can see and know everything but that is what happens to him at the point that his father dies um and now he's he's met his new people and they're going to work together and he's going to lead them that just reminds me of the denarius plot plotline but of course the denarius one came second it is the thing that is derivative of dune um and to me that's a perfectly adequate plot um i don't think it suffers for plot i think it suffers for for, for character connection so, yeah, to your point to your point hmm. there like Daenerys Targaryen is actually a very relatable character until she goes nuts in the last two. Like I mean, <laughs> until Game of Thrones goes yeah, off the rails yeah, in the last two seasons, she right? Start off powerful. Exactly. That's one thing that, that, that whatever his name is, Rob Gorham, got right. You can't just make them powerful from the beginning. They've got to start out being someone you feel sorry for, and then we root for them as they become powerful, and then we're like all behind them all the way because we remember where they came from. Yeah. Like that matters. Yeah. One very last thing, I hated. This idea—it's in the books, and it's—it's it's more in the movie than it's in the book. That to become the man he is born to be, this great savior, he has to kill another human. You must—he's got to kill this human to shed his his old self and become this greater person. I, someone explain it to me if you can. I didn't understand how this was a healthy message. No, I think it's meant to not be a healthy message because I think the point of Dune ah. is about false messiahs. His point is that messiahs are bad, right? Like, you shouldn't be believing in these false messiahs, right? I see. Yeah. We don't know that yet. See? Yeah. The movie hasn't told us, and the book, up to where I've read, hasn't told me that yet. So yeah, and I think makes... Paul also, it like, I think, and I think this is actually the one point that this film actually does, like, for me, it lands, right, in the sense that he makes that choice, and it's actually a horrible choice, and you know that it's not good, you shouldn't be killing a man, right? You shouldn't be mm. killing a man. But it's kind of like, in that moment, like, the film basically boils it down to that choice, right? You have a choice to die, or you have a choice to kill this guy, but if when you kill this guy, your innocence is lost, and you will embark on this, like, sort of messianic crusade across the galaxy and kill everyone, right? It's like a horrible Look, I, choice. I agree yeah. with your innocence is lost, and I will kill rather than be killed, I hope. Yeah. But... You know, and I agree that would lead to a loss of innocence. I just don't understand why it leads to my messianic cruise to great glory. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's, 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 I don't think the messianic crusade is meant to be glorious. It's meant to be horrible. It's oh. actually meant to be horrible, right? It's I, meant to be like his, his view. I, I think it's his view of it is kind of, I think in the film, the way it's kind of portrayed is that if I do this, 
then what this implies is that I will be walking down this path. Right, there's no going back. Yeah, where my hands are bloody and there's no going back now. So that's why I think the film ends at that point. And that's why from like a plot perspective, I'm like, I get why the film ends at that point because it's like the next film will be about Paul becoming the living computer, right? Because he's ticked the box of I'm going to be the horrible messiah, right? So now he's going to become the living computer. But uh, like, I mean, I guess my thing was that this is actually a really important decision. It's a horrible decision. And... Like, the fact is that it's super confusing, right? Around this table, right? We, people have even read the book, and like, it, it's confusing. <laughs> it, it's weird. It's weird. It, it's it's just like, it, it's, he is so hands-off in some ways with some of the storytelling elements, and so ambiguous, that it leaves these major things that would cohere the film together just up in the air and like, super ambiguous. Yeah. Mm. Gerald? Yeah, so if one were trying to be somewhat less than generous in describing the story of Dune, one might say that this was basically um, space Game of Thrones focused on space Afghanistan about the ri- uh, featuring the rise of space Jesus. Um, because that's, I mean, in, in large measure, that's kind of what it is. And... Um, and I think to the extent that there are problems with the movie, and there certainly are problems, the movie makes one, I think, error to which I'll come back, which has been touched upon already. But like Anajar, I think a lot of the problems with the film can be attributed to the source material, which despite everyone saying that it's a novel of ideas, isn't all that sophisticated and doesn't have all that much interesting to say about such themes as colonialism or um, the oppression and exploitation of resources, say, in the Middle East, which plainly um, Arrakis is meant to be an allegorical stand-in for. So I think it's necessary to appreciate that, for instance, whilst Paul is something of a cipher in this movie, uh, something that's probably not helped by a, a pretty sort of anemic performance by Timothée Chalamet. He's also a cipher in the novel, if not even more so. I, I've always found Paul to be perhaps the least interesting character in the novel. And to the extent that there's any colour and character in the novel, it's supplied in large measure by the supporting characters. So, yes, um, in the form of, you know, Leto Atreides, but also in the form of the, the side players like Gurney Halleck, um, the Mentats, and um, Duncan Idaho, who's this sort of swashbuck- swashbuckling, um, who's, who's, who's swashbuckling hero who sort of looms a lot larger in the in the in the novel sequels. So I, I've never been particularly attached to the character of Paul Atreides, um, and. To the extent that there was anything amazing about the novel, it's, it was never, it never lay in its probing examination of the character of Paul Atreides. It was really, it was really um, in the world building because in 1965, no one had seen such detailed world building, not even in Lord of the Rings, do we encounter such 
detailed world building as we saw in the very first Frank Herbert novel. Now, in large measure, this is because Herbert stole um, much of what happens in this in, in the novel from the basic tenets of Islam. I think when, for instance, Paul has visions of um, the future atrocities that he and the Fremen will inflict, inflict across the galaxy, I think the word jihad is actually used. And in the, the movie, for instance, there is a moment when one of the Fremen points, says to the other, is, is he, that is Paul, the Mahdi? And Mahdi, of course, is the sort of messianic figure, particularly of Shiite Islam. So there was rich world building in the novel, but it was stolen um, in large measure from um, and a, a passing acquaintance with the sort of culture surrounding uh, the Middle East, uh, particularly insofar as it pertained to um, the tenets of Islam. So, um, so that's that's what wowed people back in 1965. The world building wasn't the wasn't the characters least of all Paul, and whilst the novel um, very much plays on the notion of Paul losing his humanity as he uh, assumes an increasingly messianic role in the galaxy, uh, and, and this is particularly um, an issue in, with his with his descendants in some of the subsequent novels losing their humanity. Um, it's not as if he began with all that much humanity in the first place, because, um, as I said, he's something he's something of a cipher. And to the extent that uh, there were any there was any charm in, in any of these characters, they really came from the people around him, the side players, and even the friend themselves, who 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 start off in the novel being curiosities, but then have this sort of weird culture. Um, that and sort of weird relationship with such concepts as death that make them uh, seem, you know, genuinely interesting and otherworldly. So, which is a problem for this movie because we don't really get to know the Fremen until the second half of the novel. So, like like everyone who's already spoken, I was bowled over by the cinematic experience um, that this movie afforded. But I was perhaps a bit more forgiving of the of the faults in the movie simply because in my mind, these are really um, faults in the source material. And I kind of, I kind of sort of, if you adjust, if you adjust your frame of reference so that Paul really isn't the central focus, um, I think you actually enjoy, you certainly enjoy the novel more. You may not enjoy the movie more because he is so the central frame of reference in the movie and there's just no escaping him. And all the side characters are actually um, become desaturated sort of, um, versions of themselves compared to their novelistic predecessors. So, you know, Gurney Halleck is played by Josh Brolin. He's nowhere near as interesting or charming as the novel version of Gurney, who's this sort of um, slightly, who, who is this sort of formidable figure who has um, an element of poetic whimsy in his personality. That's completely lost in this movie. I mean, there are hints in it because Brolin quotes. Um, lines of poetry or lines from the Bible um, at various points during the movie, but you don't really get a sense of the the whimsy, the sort of minstrel aspect of his personality that uh, that's so uh, a big part of him in the novels. Um, and, you know, whilst Duncan Idaho, they play up the swashbuckling aspect of his personality in, in the movie. I mean, one just can't get away from the fact that, um, you know, Momoa, like, 
you know, sort of amazing screen presence though he may be, he can't act. <laughs> like, he is basically, he's basically, he is basically playing Space Aquaman. Like, Duck in Idaho is Space Aquaman. It's not that bad. It's not as bad as Space Aquaman. And, <laughs> and, and, the thing is, and the thing is, like, and he shaves halfway through the movie, which is a problem because he's nowhere near as hot without facial hair. So, so I just thought, I actually, actually, actually thought, you know, so I, I knew what they were aiming for with, with Duck in Idaho, you know, he was, he was meant to have, he was be, meant to bring the sort of flash and flamboyance, but I, I just think he was a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a waste of, a bit of waste of space. Um, so, um, and, you know, amongst the Fremen, the moment when Zendaya turns up and actually says lines of dialogue, uh, um, in a scene that she shares with with Paul, um, what took me out of the movie was her, you know, Southern Californian teen accent. Like, because none of the other Fremen talk like her. None of, none of them talk like they came from the valley. And like, so she, you know, she, where she does, and and so you're like, this is so weird. You know, the, the, the Fremen, they're kind of they're kind of meant to be the space Taliban, and she sounds like she's like. You know, from space, you know, space LA. So, so uh, that, you know, and the fact is, he's only in the movie for like two seconds, despite yeah. being in every shot in the trailer. Yeah. Is so just, uh, it, it just completely took me out of the movie when, when she appeared. Um, now, the, the one, the one mistake that I referred to earlier that this movie makes um, compared to the source material, and it's one that you alluded to, Darren, is that um, it doesn't make clear enough. I don't think that um, that the future that that Paul has decided to pursue is one which will result in atrocities, genuine atrocities, not just not just war, but genuine atrocities. Billions of lives lost across the galaxy. That's something that Herbert was keen to emphasise in, in Paul's visions of his of his future. Now you do get an extended future sequence. It's where Paul sort of dressed up in the gold armour, like kicks serious ass. Yeah. And, and and the problem with that is like you watch that sequence and you're like, oh, Paul's future is going to be awesome. He's going to kick so much serious. Yeah, he's going to be a Power Ranger. He looks yeah. like a Power Ranger. Like what? <laughs> like and like. And like he's got some moves, and he opens up his helmet, and he's got blue eyes, and then he's going to be standing on this spaceship, and Zendaya is going to be standing next to him, and they've both got blue eyes, and they both look like you know space Calvin Klein models. That's fucking awesome, but but that's that completely misses the point of the of the well, vision look, they, in, in the book, where, they, where, they, where it's like not awesome. It's the very opposite of awesome. Exactly. And, and they, but they have the burning bodies, right? But the way those burning bodies are portrayed is so, like, it's not the, you know, you would think that it's a greater focus, but they're like a sort of a tiny flash of a scene. And you're not even sure what context those bodies are there for. Like, it, it's really weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And the thing is, like, and while there's a pile of them, it's actually not that big a pile, but what Paul sees is, like, an endless ocean of corpses stretching from one end of the galaxy to the other. What this is the one moment I think in which the 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 filmmakers actually failed to achieve um, the scale that they envisaged in the novel. The novel ha- presents 
Paul's visions as as um, a tableau of um, the worst and most large scale atrocities you could possibly imagine, and and and, and gives. And describes that as a jihad, which of course you couldn't do now because it's somewhat loaded and you know in the post 9/11 world to describe what Paul embarks upon as a, as a jihad is just problematic. But that's that's the scale of the slaughter that Paul sees in his future. And despite the fact that it's actually quite a big battle sequence that he turns up in in in, in the Golden Armor, that battle sequence does not anywhere capture the scale of the violence and the terror and the damage that Paul the novel sees in his future. And that pile of burning bodies doesn't come anywhere close to capturing the, the scale of and the horror of the atrocities that Paul sees in his future. So in many ways, whilst the novel, whilst the movie um, time and time again impresses with its scale, and in many ways even exceeds the film, exceeds what uh, the, the, the novel in, in the scale of what it presents to us, um, at least in relation to that vision of the future which terrifies Paul, which makes his decision to walk down the path of the, of the messianic figure all the more poignant, it is lost. Now, I... I I'm going to say I sound very critical when I say that, but the thing is, um, I was kind of I was kind of forgiving of the movie, or perhaps more forgiving than you, Darren, simply because um, I'm not particularly I've just never been particularly interested in the story of, of Paul Atreides. Uh, he's just uh, I, I, I I'm much more the, the 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 appeal of the novel to me was always um, the world that it created. And just the sheer weirdness of like basically um, transplanting whole swathes of um, Muslim or Islamic uh, culture and iconography and turning and spinning it into science fiction. There's some like in this day and age we would call that cultural appropriation, but the way that Herbert does it is quite, you know, despite its problematic nature, imaginative. And that was always what, and that that was always what. I mean, having reread the novel recently, that's that's the part. That's that's what I like about the novel. I like to sort of spend time in that world. And so, the the this movie uh, gave its audience, I think, the opportunity to spend time in the most vividly realized version of that world outside the novel. And to to that extent, I was more than happy to spend those two and a half hours being sort of um, wowed with every shot and every frame, being sort of blown out of my seat by Hans Zimmer's score, by the sort of incredible sound mix. In fact, more, arguably more important than the size of the screen is the size of the sound system on which you experience this movie because it is really, you know, the, the phrase audio visual gives emphasis to the audio element. You know, it's what you hear that, 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 um, is given emphasis in that, in that, in that term. And this really was, um, an audio visual experience par excellence. Um, so 
despite despite sounding sort of critical, very critical in my in my remarks about um, about this movie, ultimately um, I forgave a good many of its flaws because they they came from the source material, and to the extent that it allowed me to spend time in this in this world, I was just glad glad for it. Um, I'd be very curious to see how uh, the second half of the novel is tackled because there's there is some weird stuff there like deeply weird stuff um and uh and i'll be curious to see whether having made dune parts one and two uh they decide to uh tackle the later installments in the series of novels because the later i don't know I don't, I don't know i don't know what herbert was smoking yeah they but, go off but, the rails but, <laughs> by the time you get by the time he got to you know god emperor of dune but whatever it was that stuff was strong, and <laughs> yeah. it would probably be a better place if we were all on it. But like, so, so does it get good? It, no, I would argue that the first book is probably the best book. It just gets oh, yeah. weird, really yeah. weird. <laughs> um, so it gets, it, I mean, I you know, uh, over the weekend, I after having watched the movie, I decided to do because I'm not going to read all these books, so I decided to do the the Wikipedia. Look up the Wikipedia entries on each of these books, and uh, these plot summaries were just wow, Jesus! Uh, <laughs> you do not need acid. You do not need to drop acid. All you need to do is read read the Wikipedia summaries of these novels. So um, I'd be curious to see how far <coughs> they take the notion of adapting um, the Hermit novels. We yeah. know, I think, we know for a fact that Amazon or someone HBO Max has greenlit. A prequel series about Lady Jessica. Yeah. Um, so they're obviously trying to build out a franchise out of this, but um, I mean, if they if they stay close or if they faithfully adapt the novels, um, I think a lot of people will be uh, will be uh, sort of getting off the train pretty quickly. Yeah. Hey, look, Jazz. I, I I think you know. I actually think we are a lot more aligned. Um, than you think, as in, well, like, at the end of the day, I actually agree with you, right? I think my comments around the emotional core of the film and Paul Atreides is more like, I wish they had done that, right? Because I feel like it would have been a better film. It would have been a more human film, a film that we could have connected with more, right? As is, I 100% agree with you that in some ways, tonally, this film captures the book really, really well. And... I also 100% agree with you that a lot of these, the criticisms that I have, right, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of willing to overlook it because the experience itself was actually quite, I mean, everyone said this, it, it's like a physical experience. You leave that theatre and it feels like <laughs> you've been affected in a physical way by the experience, right? So, yeah, like, I, I think at the end of the day, this is like, I would totally recommend people watch this film like no doubt right like i mean i wouldn't go into i would i would say that they probably need to temper their expectations that it's not going to be like an amazing character piece or anything like that but as an experience like 100 go nuts this is an amazing like i don't think i've seen recently a film that is quite this level of experience and the other thing is that like i mean mags has noted this i think everyone's kind of noted this right but you know, I can, like, I guess Dune is one, you know, uh, there's lots of fantasy universes that I am a huge fan of, 
And I only hope that when those universes get their silver screen treatment, that someone like Denis Villeneuve takes the reins. Because, like, there is something to be said about the level of care and um, detail and love that has gone into crafting this visually. It is ridiculous. I mean, it is actually ridiculous, right? Like, I've walked out of that film thinking to myself... The amount of money they must have spent on concept design is... Because, like, you know, we talk about the book being very well, like, you know, quite a sort of... You know, the world-building kind of in the book. And that's true. But Herbert just has to write it on a page, right? Here, it's like someone needs to sit down, read the thing, and then interpret it visually, right? And it's not even like he's... It's not like Herbert has described all of these buildings or whatever it is in a very specific way, right? Some concept artist has to literally sit there and go, out of nothing, I've got to put something down, right? And, like, that visualization is out of this world. The concept artists on this film need to be given a raise. Every dollar that was spent on this film when it comes to that visual side was like, there are some films where you're like, how did this film cost this much money? This film is like, oh my God, every dollar is up on that screen. Like, I get why this film cost this much money because you needed to pay a lot of really smart, creative, talented people to do all of this stuff. Like, even the CG, there's not really one CG scene that I'm looking at and I say wow, that looks crap. That looks a bit... You know, like, we watch the Marvel films, right? And there are the scenes where you're like, yeah, that was a bit naff, right? Like, that CG scene didn't really quite land, right? You know, often it's the dumb, like, monster fight scenes or whatever it is, right? Every scene in this film, you're like, oh my god. This this looks super, super real, <laughs> right? It, it feels like this thing could actually exist. It Like, to that extent, this film... I, I don't know... Even Blade Runner 2049, the level of concept design is not... It's not... This takes that, like, whatever sort of concept design that he did in Blade Runner 2049, he just takes it to, like... Takes it not just to the next level, but the next, like, three levels above that, right? It's freaking ridiculous. It actually is ridiculous, the level of design that's gone into this film. Um, oh, look, I-, I wouldn't be surprised if eventually, if next year this movie, like, made a clean sweep of all the technical Oscars. Like, um, the visual effects, cinematography, editing, sound design, even part- possibly even score. I mean, every every aspect, like, these craftsmen and women... Um, were working at the very top of their game in conjuring uh, this vividly realised version of what um, they speculated uh, must have been what Herbert saw in his mind's eye. Um, It is so richly detailed. It is so um, immaculately uh, considered and conceived. Um, and, And the thing is, I mean, it's something we saw in Blade Runner 2049. We see it again. But the thing is, um, the shots, every shot is beautiful. But the, the, the thing is, Villeneuve, and maybe, maybe this is to disguise flaws in the CGI, I don't know. But the one thing he does is the camera never captures a clean shot. There's always fog, mist, dust um, sort of blowing across the screen. So you never actually get... a, a you rarely ever get a clean or clear shot of, of what's in the frame. Like that scene where the 
Reverend Mother lands on Caladan before administering the Gomjabar test to Paul, where they the, the that ship is is just a series of lights landing in the rain, and then you see these sort of silhouetted hooded figures come off the ship. It's an exquisitely beautiful shot, but it's also one that's very very unclear. But in that lack of clarity, in that sort of um, Villeneuve actually sort of gives a real flavour of a world that's that's lived in um, yeah. and that imperfections is actually um, all the more realistic. Yeah, and I love the way that there's so much weird stuff in this film and it's kind of just there, right? Like, he doesn't explain it. He doesn't explain the way the straight space travel works. There's just this big tube in space, right? And it's kind of like, he just leaves this there. Like, all the random stuff. Like, you know the Harkonnens... Like, I know that the Harkonnens are a little bit two-dimensional, but, like, obviously, like, the scene where, like, as Anager was saying, the Baron is levitating, right? That's not in the book, I don't think. But it's amazing. Like, visually, someone thought of that and was like, that would make this fat guy super intimidating. Yeah, 100%, you're right. Like, beautifully realised scene, right? And then similarly, there's the scene where, like, there's the weird, like, spider creature that has human hands, right? In the Harkonnen, like, you know when um, the Bene Gesserit lady goes to visit the Harkonnen? Like, it's just there, and then it just goes... It, it's, I love it. I love it. This is super... Like... If, if you've ever seen a, an earlier movie, an earlier Denny Villeneuve movie called... Um enemies uh, you'll know that uh, Villeneuve is kind of obsessed with spiders oh is he uh, <laughs> and 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 so it was not surprising to see that thing whatever it was in this movie but design wise it was just so consistent right I want to make like look I don't know if you guys have seen the David Lynch Dune from the 80s have you guys seen that no no okay it, it's a crap film I, I, I don't think it's a very good film but whatever that film also has a lot of super weird stuff, but when Lynch puts it on the screen, it just looks weird. Like the entire, like you watch Lynch's Dude, and you're like, "This is just super weird." Like it's not quite fitting for me. I think what this film does, this design in this film does really well, is that it's weird, but it hits that sweet spot where you just like. I'm going to accept it, right? It feels like part of this world. It's weird, but it feels like part of this world. Lynch's Dune was just like weirdness for weirdness sake. Doesn't quite like... It's It's like a really interesting parallel, actually, if you put these two films together, where it's like one film you can put weird stuff in, but just the way you present it or whatever it is, the way you film it, it just kind of fits. And then the other one is just like, what the hell am I watching? This is the... Like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, yeah it, it is quite incredible. It is the visualization, as you said, the audio in this film is just, yeah, it, 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 it is incredible. I, I'd be interested if anyone around this table, what is a comparable film to this visually? No, not, not obviously not, we're not talking about plot or theme or story. Visually, have you seen anything that is comparable to... What about Lord to of the Rings, would we say? I would argue that this film is above that because Lord of the Rings yeah, has a very classic fantasy trope, right? Like, if, if you're doing the costume design to Lord of the Rings, in some ways it's like, well, it's like medieval fantasy, right? To some extent, you, you know what I mean? There's a little bit of flourish, but... I mean, 
Look, the, the two examples that I can think of aren't perfect parallels, but in terms of just giving a sense of grandeur on the screen that that moviegoers hadn't seen before, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. um, I can imagine that people would have just sat through that when it first came out and thought to themselves, we have never seen any... This is completely amazing. Um, the other is... Well, actually, I've got two more examples. The other... What, example number two is Apocalypse Now, because that really is... As, as, a, as, a, as a conjuring of the scale of, of warfare and the weirdness of the Vietnam experience, that, that, yeah, that bizarre... That combination of grandeur and complete weirdness... Um, is there in Apocalypse Now, and it's kind of there in Dune as well. And finally, in terms of like something that that you've never seen before, that just leaps off the screen and takes you places that you don't think you've you've ever been. Um, gravity. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Gravity definitely also has that very intense. I hate using the word visceral, but I'm going to use it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mags, do you think you've oh, seen... Oh, oh, can I... Jurassic no, go, go, go. Park. Jurassic Park. Really? Nah. <laughs> no, yeah, Isn't look, that the uh, first time we all yeah, have yeah. of, oh my God, what is that on the screen? Yeah, that's true. The yeah. first one, like the actual 1993. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I, I, yeah, I remember when that, when that thing came out, um, like no one had ever seen CGI that good before. I mean, that was really, that was really the sort of, a debut ball for for CGI as a, as a filmmaking tool, and um, it, it absolutely blew audiences away. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, um, Anja, I'm interested. Would you? Are you going to go see Dune two? I'm definitely going to see Dune two. The the bigger question is, am I going to read the rest of the book? The reason I read. Dune up to where I got up to was because I knew I would not be able to follow the movie. I was told it's that Dune is confusing or, or, or like hard to follow and that the, the original movie was kind of confusing and I'm just so sick of sitting in the movies and not being able to follow <laughs> which is which is likely for me. Um, so I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this book so that I can properly enjoy this movie. But I just couldn't get past that middle section. Look, I've got a lot longer now than I thought I had to complete this book. Um, so really, that's the question, and that will answer how much I am invested in this movie. If I am invested enough, I'll read it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Jerry, obviously. Like my sense is that you quite enjoyed this film despite its flaws. So I yeah, imagine yeah. that you're. I, I very much enjoyed this film. I mean, I don't think it's as good as Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I agree, one hundred percent. I think agree. it's. I think it's. I think it's, uh, it's. It's really uh, an amazing film. I'm not sure whether it's the best movie of twenty twenty one because I think I actually think the Green Knight might be just a bit better than Dune, but. Um, I don't know about that. No, I think The Green Knight is also a super weird film. It is a, it's a good film, but it is a super weird film. I think a lot of the criticisms we level at Dude are probably um, <laughs> applicable to The Green Knight as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but it's, it's interesting. I mean, The Green Knight also is a visually quite an interesting film as well. So, um, yeah. I mean, beyond The Green Knight, are there any other films that have really struck you this year? Jerry? Uh, look, um, 
Right. Well, with, with COVID, yeah. So <laughs> not just COVID, but like in terms of like movies. Yeah, Mulan that, was a bummer. Um, like, Bond was okay. It was good. It was good, but you know. Um, yeah, what else was there? Shang Chi was Shang Chi was fun, but like I think really sort of fell apart in its third act. Um, and, and like and you know sort of um, thingy uh, King Kong versus Godzilla was like. <laughs> Are you for it? We're going to put it's King Kong vs. Godzilla as the best film of the year no, no, in the I, conversation. That is, one of the, that, that, that is exceptional in just in the sense that it is quite possibly the stupidest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I cannot believe that it's even mentioned in the same conversation as best film of the year. Yeah, well, the, the fact of the matter is we actually haven't seen too many movies this year. Yeah, yeah. There, there haven't been too many sort of movie releases sort of this year that are worth noting. And so Dune and The Green Knight are probably the standout movies of 2021 mm. um, that weren't sort of just franchise fair. Mm. Um, Mags? So, yeah. Mags? Yeah, I'm thinking. Um... Fast Nine? No. <laughs> Fast Nine. Uh, I, I rewatched um, the Downton Abbey movie. Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> There's another one coming out next year. There is. You can't count a rewatch. Oh, <laughs> Harry Potter. Harry Potter are the best films oh, of the okay. year. <laughs> okay. It could be because it was a um, a TV. We watched it on TV and. I hadn't seen the first one, but the Suicide Squad, surprising, surprisingly entertaining. The second one. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't. It's not an intellectual movie. Let's not go that far. But you know, <laughs> Friday evening, that was fun. Yeah. Well, I'm just question for Anna. Did you did you think King Richard was like a a, a, a sort of contender for movie of the year? No. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, we shouldn't really talk about another movie in this podcast at length, but um, no, it was just a fun movie. I don't think it's contender for movie of the year. Like the only reason it would be is because of obvious political reasons. Mm. <laughs> okay. Did well, look. Did you think that it was? No, I don't think it's. I don't think it's movie of the year material. I thought it was. I thought it was fun. I thought it was yeah. good. Nice to know a bit more about where Venus and Serena Williams came from, but. Um, Agreed, yeah. agreed. Mm, okay. Yeah, look, I, I think I'd probably agree with Jerry here, right? Like, despite its flaws, the scope of Dune, the, like, the visual technical achievements in Dune, like, right now it probably is. I mean, it, this hasn't been a massive high point for movies this year, but, like, yeah, Dune is definitely up there. And it's definitely, like, regardless, regardless of its flaws, it's a film that I think will stick in my mind for a long time. Like, there is something about this film which just kind of, like, clings to you for whatever reason. So, yeah. Okay. Is there anything else we want to chat about in terms of Dune? No, that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> Mad, oh, can I just say one last thing? It's just occurred to me that Stilgar... The one white guy on the on the planet is the leader of all the brown guys before the other the other white leader comes along. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> okay. Look. On that note, um, I think that's all we're going to say about June for now. Um, we 
I don't know what film we're going to do next. We'll figure something out, but um, we'll be back soon. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this episode of Pop Culture Update. Um, say goodnight, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.